This is a Scream Queen production. I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is So Dead Podcast. Happy True Crime Tuesday, fellow humans. Who's ready for another dead time story? Today's story is a rough one. I'm not going to lie. It is pretty recent, and you guys know that I don't really do a lot of recent cases, but I decided to do this one, and then as I was doing my research, I kept finding all of these parallels that just really, really made my heart so sad. So this one's hard. Viewer discretion and all that. This is the story of Amy Hensley, a young wife and mother who disappeared from Hartford, Michigan in 2011. Hartford is a little baby-sized town located in southwest Michigan, kind of like where your little knobby wrist bone is if you're looking at the mitten. Is your outside wrist bone knobby? Mine is. Anyway, um, can't you know, the outer corner, pinky side of your hand, outer lower corner. That's where Hartford is. It is actually closer to Chicago than it is to Detroit, and it's only about 15 miles from my favorite weird-as-fuck Michigan town, Benton Harbor, home of our long-haired baseball-playing cult, the House of David. Hartford only has about 2,500 residents, so it's one of those towns where everybody knows everybody. And it's where Amy Hensley lived when she disappeared in broad daylight on January 24th, 2011. Amy was born to Robert and Brenda Miston on May 1st, 1980, so she was only six days younger than me. We probably, like, crossed hospital paths. Like, my mom was probably coming home from the hospital as her mom was entering the hospital to give birth. That's how close our birthdays are. She was born in St. Joseph, which is another small city in southwest Michigan, but she actually attended school in Hartford. I would assume that meant that her family moved from St. Joseph to Hartford, but I'm not entirely sure. She loved the outdoors, camping, fishing, hiking, and she loved the beaches of Lake Michigan, many of which were nearby. Uh, They were some of her favorite places to go. She liked to go for long walks on the beach. It's not just a pickup line. It's a real thing if you live near the Lake Michigan beaches. Like many a 90s gal, yours truly included, Amy collected Precious Moments dolls and spent countless hours scrapbooking. My, I don't collect Precious Moment dolls now, but I did. Uh, I don't know if I collected them, but I did like them. I just remember that my graduation cake, I graduated in 98, my cake for my open house. Those of you not from Michigan, we call graduation parties open houses. I don't know why we do it. We do. And I didn't even know that other states didn't do it until I was ordering my son's graduation party stuff a few years ago. And everything I looked up under open house wasn't wasn't cutting it on the Google search. Um, Yeah, that was a, a weird learning experience for me. And we're way off topic now. Anyway, my open house cake was a precious moment doll in a graduation gown. I just vividly remember that. So Precious moments, dear to my heart. During her senior year at Hartford High School, Amy met and fell in love with a local boy who graduated a few years before her, 
James Hensley. The two met through a mutual friend and became inseparable almost instantly. James was all the way in love, which was not surprising. Amy was absolutely beautiful. Petite, long brown hair, big brown eyes, this like infectious movie star smile. So pretty. So pretty. Things moved real fast for James and Amy, and they found out Amy was pregnant just a couple of months into their relationship. Amy graduated in June of 1999, and just three months later, on September 16, 1999, she and James got married at the town's courthouse. Amy was only 19, and James was 21. Just little babies. Little babies. They got a little place together, and they welcomed their first son, Jared, in 2000. So not only were Amy and I the same age, but we both became mamas when we were 19. Well, I was technically 18 when I had my son, but I turned 19 like two months later. So potato, potato on that one, I suppose. Which means not only were we the same age, but our our firstborn sons were just about the same age as well. A few years later, James and Amy welcomed their second son, Jonah, who is the same age as my second son. So again, to say that I feel kind of like a a connection with this case and a kinship with Amy right off the bat here is an understatement. We were literally born six days apart. We both got married super young to our high school boyfriends that were a couple years older. Both started having babies super young. We're both boy moms with sons the same age, living about an hour and a half apart. It makes me wish that we had known each other, you know? I didn't know a whole lot of people my age that were having babies when I was, on account of me being a baby myself and all. So, it, you know, it would have been nice. I bet we would have been friends, maybe, possibly. All of the stories that I tell on So Dead are sad, obviously, because someone dies. Sometimes a lot of someones die. But when you have something in common with the people involved or you feel like you can relate to them in some way, that makes it extra super hard. So yeah, this is a difficult one. Okay, last time I'm going to point that out. After Amy had her babies, she went back to school. She had dreams of becoming a nurse. She spent some time at Southwestern Michigan College and then attended the phlebotomy program at Lake Michigan College, where she became a bona fide bloodsucker. Not a vampire, but like a legal with a needle bloodsucker. I always wanted to be a vampire. I think I still want to be a vampire. I want to sleep all day and be up all night and creep people out. I am grossed out by blood, though, so that part might not work. Sidebar. On the topic of vampires, real quick. I have been re-watching True Blood. I watched it when it was on HBO Waited for the new seasons every Sunday night. I think it was Sundays that it was on. Every Sunday night. Um, And, you know, that was however many years ago. I can't remember when it ended, but several years ago. And I recently decided to just start rewatching it. I was thinking about it one day, and so I turned it back on. And I'm enjoying it so much more the second time around. Because I've got, like, that connection to the characters already. And I know it's weird as fuck. I know it's disgusting, so those things don't shock me like they did the first time around, and I'm not as upset with the storylines the second time around because I know where they're going and I know how weird they got. So yeah, I'm just, I'm really enjoying True Blood. 
on the second go-round. So if you watched it already once and it's been a long time, I would say add it back to your binge list. And if you've never seen it, definitely give it a chance. But it is super, super disgusting. Just FYI. Okay, back to our story. The Hensley boys were active in sports and Amy was a full-blown boy mom. She was at every game, every practice, football, baseball, basketball, can relate. It was said that even though she was usually the smallest mom there, she was just this petite little thing, she was the loudest mom there. She was always screaming and cheering, and um, I can't relate to that part. I'm pretty calm at my kids' games, but yeah, so she, she loved being a boy mom and having her kids involved in sports. Amy and James were very much in love. They were best friends, and despite getting married and becoming parents so young, which is often a death sentence for a relationship, they beat the odds and their marriage was solid. They celebrated their 10th anniversary in 2009. They talked about having another baby. Amy was excited about the prospect of going back to school to earn her nursing degree, but she was also enjoying being able to be a stay-at-home mom to Jared and Jonah while they were little. And you know, I'm all this sounds great and well and good. I'm sure that there were hard days and rough patches, but overall, things were going good for the Hensleys, which made it all the more shocking when Amy disappeared in the middle of a weekday in 2011. But to understand what happened and how, we have to go back in time a bit to talk about James Hensley. James was born on April 16, 1978. He grew up in the same area as Amy and went to the same schools, some of them at the same time, although their paths wouldn't cross until they were older. Growing up, James's best friend was his cousin, Junior Lee B.B. Jr. That's our first problem. Junior Lee B.B. Jr. Uh, he went by B.J. B.J. was a couple years older than James, and he always looked out for him. The two were more like brothers than cousins. James looked up to BJ, which was unfortunate because BJ was a fucking psycho. One of his favorite things to do as a child was go down to the creek, fill a bucket with live fish, then take them out of the bucket one by one, put firecrackers in their mouths, and blow them up alive. Yeah, that's where this is going. BJ didn't just like to hurt animals, though. He took pleasure in hurting humans as well. He once intentionally burned James with a hot lighter when they were little, almost like branded him, so he turned the lighter on and waited until the little metal part got real hot and then stuck it to James's skin. And he thought that the little smiley face-shaped blister that it left on his little cousin's skin was just hilarious. Despite these big giant red flags that there was something off about BJ, James moved in with him after he graduated from Hartford High School. The two lived in a small house in Coloma, the tiniest of all the tiny towns that we're talking about today. Coloma is a 10-minute drive from Hartford and only about half the size, so half as many people. How many people did we say were in Hartford? You guys remind me, I don't remember. few thousand? Couple thousand? 2,500. So we're talking... Under a thousand? No. Twelve hundred? One thousand two hundred and fifty people, if we're splitting that twenty five hundred and half. 
That's how many people there were in Coloma. And still are. I'm really tired, you guys. I'm sorry for trying to do that math and work all the way through that with you. We'll just forget that happened and move on with our story. So Coloma, tiny fucking town, and BJ and James quickly became well-known in the area. Well, BJ became well-known and James was kind of more guilty by association. BJ was in and out of jail all the time. The local police raided his home on a regular basis. He actually kept a lawyer on retainer because he was just always, always in trouble. You know, a lot of times the bad kids and the bullies and the weirdos, I'm doing air quotes around all of this, they get their shit together as they grow up and they go on to lead normal lives. Not Junior Lee B.B. Jr., Need an example? Here's one. I'm going to do something I don't do very often on the podcast, but I think this is important here, so this is a trigger warning, because this is fucking terrible. It involves animal cruelty. It was hard for me to read. It's going to be hard for me to say. So if that kind of thing bothers you to the point where you can't listen to it, feel free to go skip ahead here 30 seconds. When BJ and James lived together, so BJ would have been in his early to mid-20s at this point, BJ had a pet rat. One day, the rat bit him. So BJ took the rat and threw it into a pot of boiling water alive. And then he fucking ate it. His pet rat. He told James that it tasted like chicken. When James asked him why he would do something like that, he smiled and said, She bit me, so I bit her back. What in the actual fuck? That is, like, I can't, it's fucking disgusting. Anyway, in 2001, the Coloma Township Police Department burned to the ground in what was ruled a case of arson. Since Junior Lee B.B. Jr. was public enemy number one, all eyes were on him from the start, and he admitted to James that he started the fire, but the case was never officially solved, and B.J. was never charged. So, B.J. was a bad dude. Like, really bad. And his best friend, his surrogate little brother, James Hensley, had outgrown him. He was married, he was raising a family, etc., etc. He seemed to have escaped BJ's dark shadow, for the most part. Meanwhile, BJ became an amateur MMA fighter. He was a member of the Southwest Michigan Ultimate Combat Fighting Organization. Although he wasn't very good, he ended his career with a losing record of 3-6. and six. Even though he was seemingly the Antichrist, BJ managed to snag himself a steady girlfriend. For several years, he dated Tanya Howarth, a petite blonde two years his senior. Tanya enjoyed the simple things in life. NASCAR, country music, and horror movies. She loved her two teenage daughters, although she didn't have custody of them. Uh, When Tanya took up with BJ, she actually became further alienated from her family and friends, so... Whatever was going on with her not having custody of her kids, getting with BJ did not improve that situation at all. It was a known fact that BJ was both physically and mentally abusive. Tanya's loved ones warned her that BJ was going to wind up killing her someday, but she still stayed. 
BJ both sold and abused drugs, including opiates and amphetamines. Whether he got Tanya hooked on drugs or that was the thing that kind of drew them together in the first place, I'm not sure, but they did drugs together, including meth, and meth is all bad, obviously. So Tanya was not in a good situation. She was hooked on drugs, she's been isolated from her loved ones, including her children, by her abusive, drug-dealing boyfriend. Her life was a stark contrast from that of Amy Hensley, a happily married woman who was adored by her family and obsessed with her little boys. But the two women would soon become connected permanently. So back to January 24th, 2011. It's a Monday. It's Michigan in the winter, so probably cold as shit. Amy Hensley is 30 years old. The love of her life, James, is 32. The couple has now been married for going on 12 years. Their sons are 7 and 10, although Jared is just days away from his 11th birthday. That morning, Amy got up, made breakfast, saw the kids off to school, and saw James off to work. Now listen to this. When James went to leave the house at 7.30, Amy was waiting for him at the front door with his coffee in hand. She kissed him three times, as was their tradition, told him that she loved him, and then stood and blew kisses at him from the front window as he got into his car and drove away. Like, what? That's that's how close these two were. Because let me tell you, there are entire days that my husband and I don't even speak we're so busy. And we haven't even been married 10 years yet. They've been married 12 years at this point. So yeah, that's the kind of adorable relationship that they had. Every day, James called Amy on his 10 a.m. break. They already missed each other after just a couple hours apart. After 12 years of marriage. Sorry, I just, I cannot get over this part. On this day, though, Amy didn't answer when James called. He figured she was just busy, but when he called again a little while later, she still didn't answer. Now, she didn't have a cell phone, so he's calling. It's 2011, but he's calling an actual landline, and it's not being answered. After a few more tries, James told his boss that he was headed home to make sure everything was okay. He knew Amy couldn't have gone anywhere. His car had recently broken down, so he had Amy's, so she was at home without a car. He was worried maybe she had, like, fallen down the basement steps while doing the laundry or something, and so he just wanted to go home and make sure that everything was okay. So he gets home, and the front door is locked, which Amy, for some reason, didn't have a key. Maybe... James took her keys because he took her car and they didn't think about the fact that she wouldn't have a key. I'm not sure. But the house was locked, which meant that if she had been outside and locked herself out, she wouldn't have had a way back in. Everything inside was just as it should be, except for the fact that Amy was gone, along with her jacket and her shoes. The TV was on, her purse was there, but she was just gone. No note, no nothing. James asked the neighbors if they'd seen anything that morning, and they reported seeing a black truck in the driveway around 9, 9.30 with a petite brunette getting in the passenger side, which would have been Amy, most likely. James figured the truck was probably BJ's, so he called his cousin to see if he'd seen Amy or if he knew anything. 
BJ told James that he and Tanya had stopped by that morning, knocked on the door, but nobody answered, so they left. James called all of Amy's friends, family, anyone he could think of that she might have left the house with and forgotten to tell him. As the hours stretched on, it got time for the boys to be home from school. Their bus dropped them off around 3 o'clock every day. So wherever she'd gone, whatever she might have been doing, Amy would absolutely be back home in time to meet the boys. But 3 o'clock came and went, and there was no sign of Amy. The bus pulled up in front of the house and let the boys out. They were surprised to find their father waiting for them. James Hensley's first call to 911 was at 4.20 p.m. on January 24th. He calmly reported his wife missing and explained that this was very out of character for her. She didn't have her purse or car. She didn't have her keys. She didn't have a cell phone at all. So police did the thing that police do, and they told him to wait 24 hours and call back if she didn't turn up. James paced that entire night, making phone calls, looking out the window, hoping, praying. On Tuesday, January 25th, Amy's family started their own search. They printed flyers and hung them all over town, knocked on doors, called hospitals, searched neighborhoods and fields, everything they could think of. James contacted a friend at the local news station who ran a story about Amy's disappearance. And then at the magical 24-hour mark, James called the police again. On Wednesday, January 26th, the family held a meeting to talk strategy. Everyone was doing whatever they could to help find Amy. Everyone except for one person, the closest person to James, Cousin BJ. James's father made a comment about how, when he dropped off flyers for BJ to distribute that morning, BJ barely looked up from his bowl of cereal and didn't seem all that interested in helping, which was odd. Because remember, James lived with BJ when he met Amy, so BJ had known her just as long as James had. They were family, they were friends, they were close— so it didn't make sense for him to not really seem to care that she was missing. A friend of James who was at this family meeting remarked that BJ had always been weird where Amy was concerned. As previously mentioned, BJ was a drug dealer. Among his offerings were prescription pills, and Amy had a family member with back problems and no insurance, so she would buy Vicodin for this family member from BJ, which meant that she regularly owed BJ money. So he would stop by the Hensley home, usually when James wasn't there, to collect. On one occasion, when Amy couldn't pay him, BJ suggested that Amy repay him with a sexual favor. She was pissed. She was disgusted. She was feeling intimidated and uncomfortable. Uh, She didn't want to tell James about the situation because she knew how much it would hurt him if BJ was talking to her in that manner, and she didn't want to come between them. So she kept this from James, but she did confide in one of their mutual friends about the encounter, and this friend didn't break Amy's confidence on the issue until she went missing, which it was a few years from the time this happened to the time she disappeared. James had an appointment later that day to meet with detectives for his first official interview. He couldn't wait to tell them what he'd learned about BJ. What he didn't realize until it was too late was that it wasn't really an interview, it was more of an interrogation. Of course it was an interrogation. He was the husband. And it's usually the husband, we know that. As far as police knew, James had been the last person to see Amy, 
They were alone in the house together that morning. He was suspect number one. James was frustrated, but he cooperated with police. He wanted them to rule him out as quickly as possible so that they could turn their focus to BJ. Police grilled James Hensley about his wife's disappearance for hours. The next day was Thursday, January 27th, and no one had seen Amy since Monday. That morning, with James still firmly in their sights, police held a press conference and said they believed that Amy was still alive, that she'd left home voluntarily, and they were really just kind of looking for answers on where she was and what she was doing, but they didn't expect foul play. But by that afternoon, rumors began circulating around town that BJ's trailer had been searched and investigators had found blood. While BJ was down at the police station being questioned, a volunteer organization called Michigan Working Dogs went to the Hensley home where their trained search and rescue dogs were given Amy's scent. The dogs were then taken to BJ's trailer on County Road 687 in Bangor Township, just six miles from where the Hensleys lived. The dogs picked up Amy's scent easily, and that evening, her body was found buried in a shallow grave behind BJ's trailer. She'd been shot twice, once in the thigh and once in the chest. But Amy wasn't alone in that shallow grave. Buried with her was Tanya Howarth, BJ's girlfriend. She'd been shot twice in the head. BJ was already in police custody when the bodies were found, so there was no manhunt or anything like that. He confessed pretty quickly. Well, kind of confessed. BJ's story was that he and Amy had been having an affair for about a year and a half. There's no question that he was infatuated with his cousin's wife, but according to BJ, it was a two-way street. He said he picked Amy up about 9 o'clock the morning she went missing, and together they went back to his trailer. Most of this matches up with the evidence. There was no sign of a struggle at the Hensley home, and a neighbor saw a truck matching BJ's in the Hensley's driveway around 9, 9.30. And then they saw someone that matched Amy's description getting into that truck. So police do believe that Amy willingly left the house with BJ. BJ said that back at his trailer, they watched a video of his MMA match from over the weekend and smoked weed. While police found no evidence that Amy had been in BJ's trailer, she did have marijuana and Xanax in her system, which, look, nobody is judging. Here in 2020, we have been living in a nightmare for the past eight months. Who doesn't have a little THC or Xanax in their system? Or both. So there was some merit to BJ's story that he was telling. Uh, he said that right as he and Amy started making out on the bed, Tanya showed up and caught them. She freaked out, grabbed BJ's shotgun, and she and Amy got into a physical altercation. Both women did have fresh scrapes and bruises consistent with a scuffle, but not like a full-on Brawl, so not like you would expect to see on someone if they had been beaten badly, but just kind of a, a back and forth scuffle. During this scuffle, the gun went off, Amy was shot in the leg, and when she fell to the ground stunned, Tanya regrouped, leveled the gun at her, and fired again, hitting her in the chest and killing her instantly. She then aimed the gun at BJ and said, You're next. But the gun jammed, which allowed BJ to wrestle it away from her. 
He said that he only shot her in self-defense, but both of her gunshot wounds were to the back of her head, which would indicate that she was shot trying to get away. BJ admitted that he and Tanya had been on a bender the entire weekend leading up to Monday, January 24th, when Tanya and Amy were killed. Methamphetamines were found in both BJ and Tanya's systems. Police were buying none of BJ's cockamamie story, and on January 28, 2011, four days after Amy went missing, BJ was arraigned on two charges of open murder. One of the biggest plot holes in BJ's story was the fact that investigators found no physical evidence that Amy had been in his trailer. Trailers are not big. This trailer was not big. This was not a mobile home. This was like a little camping trailer. It, it was small. Uh, if she had been shot point blank in the chest, there would be blood. There would be DNA. But the only blood and DNA in the trailer belonged to BJ and Tanya. And like even if Amy was just having an affair with BJ and there was no murder, if they usually spent time together at his trailer, her DNA would have been all over the place. And there wasn't any. Police did find blood, so BJ hadn't had time to clean up the scene or wipe it clean to where it would make sense for Amy's DNA to be missing. It was a messy, dirty, bloody scene, and none of that dirt and blood and DNA belonged to Amy. So that's pretty curious. That's That's a big question mark there. Tanya Howarth's funeral was held on February 2nd, 2011 in Benton Harbor. More than 100 people gathered for a modest memorial where Tanya's loved ones, including her teenage daughters, remembered her for her quirks and her love of life. Now, it is my duty to report the facts, so I'm going to tell you guys a very unfortunate story here. Remember, this story was really difficult for me to write and research. I cried a lot. I was feeling really down about it. So while this next part shouldn't have made me laugh, it did a little. So I thought I would share it with you guys as well. I was reading an MLive article online about Tanya's funeral. So this is like like, like a nine-year-old article. It's from 2011. What I'm guessing slash hoping happened is that once upon a time, there was a link to a photo that has since been broken. So they didn't post the actual photo. They posted the link to the image. Um, That original image maybe got deleted. So the link disappeared. And now this picture is gone and an ad was put in its place. But in this article about Tanya's funeral, this is how it reads today in 2020. Here is a poem that Amber wrote and read during her mother's funeral this afternoon. Amber is the teenage daughter of Tanya Howarth. She provided a copy of the poem to the Kalamazoo Gazette. She wrote, stay in the game. So so the stay in the game part is not supposed to be there. I'm quite sure it appears to be a very, very poorly placed MLive ad. But honestly, I feel now that I've read that and given that a lot of thought to where this ad has unfortunately been placed in a story about a funeral poem, stay in the game is like all I want on my headstone at this point. And when I saw that, it just, it reminded me of, I don't know if you guys are familiar, but uh, the the case of Molly Bish, B-I-S-H, 
a young girl that was murdered some years back. Look it up. Look up um, Molly Bish Hamster. I don't want to spoil it for you if you don't know what I'm talking about. It's nothing gross. And again, it's a horrible situation. You know, a young girl was murdered, but it is one of the most unfortunate news bloopers I've ever seen in my life. So look that up if you've never seen it before. Um, Molly Bish, B-I-S-H, hamster. But this this stay in the game thing just reminded me of that. Anyway, Tanya's funeral was on February 2nd in Benton Harbor, and she was buried afterwards at Coloma Cemetery. Amy Hensley's funeral was the following day, February 3rd, at the Hartford Federated Church. The memorial was attended by hundreds of people who then followed the funeral procession as it wound through downtown to Hill Cemetery in Lawrence Township. Junior Lee B.B. Jr.'s trial, seriously that fucking name, uh, his trial began on August 2, 2011 in Van Buren County Circuit Court. He stuck to his story that he and Amy were having an affair, Tanya caught them and killed Amy in a jealous rage, and then he killed Tanya in self-defense. The prosecution didn't really present an alternate theory. They just poked holes in his, like the fact that Tanya was shot in the back of the head twice, which does not equal self-defense, and that if Amy was shot point-blank in a camping trailer, they would have found her blood and DNA. The alternate theory that I've seen most commonly in the things that I've watched and read about this case is BJ was obsessed with Amy. We know that. She did leave with him that day willingly. He was family. They were close. That's not an indication that there was an affair, that she would leave with him. BJ, at some point, made his move, shot his shot, and Amy rejected him. So in a rage, you know, he'd been high on meth for the past several days. In a rage, he killed her. I've seen it alleged that Tanya maybe arrived home before BJ had a chance to clean up the crime scene and so he killed her to get rid of the witness. I've also seen it alleged that he actually killed Tanya first during that meth-fueled bender over the weekend, and that kind of put him into this crazed state so that when he was with Amy and she rejected him, he was just real quick to murder her as well since he'd already killed one person. What really happened? Who knows? BJ's story doesn't not make sense, But we have to remember that he's a psychopath. Remember the rat and the fish and just kind of his lifelong evilness. A week after his trial began, on August 9th, a jury of nine women and four men found Junior Lee B.B. Jr. guilty of first-degree murder in the death of Tanya Howarth and second-degree murder in the murder of Amy Hensley. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He is currently housed at the Kinross Correctional Facility in the Upper Peninsula. Was there an affair? I don't know. When the only person left to tell the world what happened is a violent, drug-addicted, lying psychopath, you're never going to get the real story. What we do know is that whatever happened on January 24, 2011, destroyed many lives. James Hensley lost his high school sweetheart and his wife of 12 years. And his beloved cousin and lifelong best friend, piece of shit, murdering asshole. Not only that, he has to live with the ongoing rumors that his wife and his cousin might have been having an affair behind his back. His two little boys lost their mom, who they adored. 
two teenage girls lost their mom, and a small town in southwest Michigan lost their innocence and their ability to believe that things like that don't happen here. And that is the super fucking sad disappearance and murder of Amy Hensley and the murder of Tanya Howarth. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. Some of my sources for this episode were Evil Lives Here, my favorite, favorite show on the ID channel, mostly because of the theme song, but also I just really like that aspect of the story, the way that they tell those ones. So this case was season six, episode four. Uh, I got information from a ton of MLive articles. They really seemed to be the only news outlet that was on it, on it with this case. And an ABC News article by Andrea Canning and Jessica Hopper. You can find a full list of resources on the page for this episode on the So Dead website. All right, so how about a little bit of lighter fare before we say goodbye today? I'm going to answer a few more listener questions Uh, I think I've got three of them, four of them today. We'll see. I don't know. It's late. I can't count. So this one is from Tam M. Her question is, what is your favorite true crime book? How appropriate since I now own a true crime bookshop. Um, (laughs) She actually sent this in quite a while ago. So it's funny that it came up on my list today. I found two about books actually. So, Tam, my favorite true crime book is Anne Rule's The Stranger Beside Me because of the craziness of the story that put the book together itself. So, it's about Ted Bundy. There's a million books about Ted Bundy. Uh, Anne Rule is my true crime hero, but the way that story comes together, which is, you know, she was a police officer living in the Pacific Northwest. She then became a true crime journalist. She gets a book deal to write her first book about these cases of these girls going missing and being murdered. And little does she know that the killer is her co-worker and friend, Ted Bundy. So the stranger beside me is literally, I'm supposed to be writing a book about this case and the murderer was in my face the whole time. So that story is just so crazy to me. So that's my favorite as far as true crime books go. Uh, Brianna asked a similar question. She said, do you have any favorite paranormal or true crime books? Uh, I'm going to stick with The Stranger Beside Me. And uh, then she asked, do I have any favorite books from local Michigan authors? Again, funny, I'm, I did not make these questions up. I really had these on my list. So the timing is really perfect. Uh, I carry quite a lot of books at Dead Time Stories from Michigan authors. So Rod Sadler is a wonderful local author. We've had him on the podcast, talked about the cases that he's covered. He's got three books now. So his first one is about Martha Haney, who murdered her mother-in-law in Williamston in the 1890s. Second one's about a murder in Stockbridge, Michigan. And then his newest book that just came out, Killing Women, is about East Lansing serial killer Don Jean Miller, who was covered in episode one of So Dead. So he is a really good local author of true crime. Tobin Book, he is an author that was at the Festival of Oddities this year. He's written several true crime books. I carry a few of his at Dead Time Stories, actually. And Rule. Anne Rule is not considered a local author because she didn't start writing until she moved out to the Pacific Northwest, but she is from Lowell, Michigan. So the queen of true crime authors is from Michigan, and it just doesn't really get any better than that. 
Okay, next question is from Leo's Mama Bear. And her question was, what has been your most interesting paranormal experience? I have to say that it was when I lived in my haunted house and it was the first thing that I couldn't explain away, which was those footprints on the floor. Because so many things you can say it was just your imagination or people can say, "Mm, that didn't really happen. You don't have any proof. There's no pictures, right? Picture, it didn't happen. But this is something that I did have physical proof of. I took pictures of the footprints. They were, there's no debate about whether they were footprints. They were definitely footprints. And I guess you could say, you know, she could have done that herself for attention. She could, you know, true, could have. I could have, but I didn't. And I know I didn't. And I know that it wasn't my footprint. And I know that it wasn't either one of my kids' footprints. So for me, that was proof that we had some paranormal activity going on in our house. So that's why that's kind of my most interesting paranormal experience. And the last one that we're going to do today is from Amy. Hers is, what is the one unsolved crime you would like to see solved and or answered? I've been asked this one before. I think that, I think during a live show when we were doing Q&A, someone asked this question. And so I feel weird choosing this one because it may not be a crime at all, but I would have to say the disappearance of Kevin Graves because that one just baffles me. You know, most of these cases where someone's missing for a long time, they're missing, but of course we know they're probably dead and we a lot of times know who probably killed them type of thing. Hello, Jean Benet talking about you. But in this case, there are so many possibilities. Something could have, anything could have happened. He could still be alive out there somewhere. He could have had some sort of accident. He could have met with foul play of some kind. We just don't know. And so I think for me, that one being so recent and being so up in the air, I would love for Kevin's family to get some answers. All right, that is it for today. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and YouTube under So Dead Podcast. Please consider checking out the Patreon page for ways to support the show financially. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash So Dead Podcast. Also, be sure to visit SoDeadPodcast.com for all of your SoDead merch. As always, you can email me your feedback and story ideas to SoDeadPodcast at gmail.com. A new episode is coming your way in a couple of weeks. It is the last episode of Season 2. FYI, just a reminder and a warning. We're winding down Season 2, going to take a break focus on the next big project for a little bit, and we'll be back at the start of 2021. So if you need something to listen to between now and then, or you need something to listen to during the break, be sure to check out the Serial Killer Chronicles, which is my first So Dead miniseries. And side note, big news there, I guess I should have put this in a different place in my talking um, because I'm throwing off my whole ending here. But uh, The Serial Killer Chronicles was recently put under contract by a publishing company. So that is actually being turned into a book. My next book is going to be called The Serial Killer Chronicles. Yay exciting. 
Uh, I've got some deadlines coming up for that. So this break from So Dead is actually hitting at the perfect time that I should be able to get the book all done and wrapped up and finished up in time to start the new season by January. Hold tight and we'll see what happens there. I am the queen of overextending myself, as you guys know. So anyway, aside from listening to the Serial Killer Chronicles, uh, you can also join the Patreon party as a $5 and up patron to unlock all of the bonus episodes. I don't know how many there are. I've been doing them one a month all year, so there's probably at least a dozen of them by now. There's some old live shows that Danny and I did together last year. Uh, and then just different things every month. I do at least one bonus episode per month for patrons. Stay safe, stay sane, and until next time, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks. 